Welcome to the Mariners cast from Sports Ethos, your place for worldwide sports coverage. I'm your host, Tino Ganasius. You can find me on Twitter at TinoJr20 and the podcast at Ethos Mariners. It is Thursday night, September 14th. We are super lucky to host uh, Jason Churchill, who's a, someone I've been listening to and reading for years. Uh, fellow Mariners fan, Mariners expert, as far as I'm concerned, he's going to join us and talk a little bit about his Mariners fandom story, uh, this 2023 Mariners team. And if we have time, we will cover some of the uh, kind of philosophical approach or his view of what the philosophical approach is of the Mariners and what his opinion is on that. What's up, Jason? How's it going? Hey, what's going on? Good to be here, man. Thanks for joining, man. This is uh, super cool. Super, super. Yeah, cool. it, you know, it is. And, 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 and I, I bet you feel this way too. It's really, really cool to not only have other folks to talk to about things you really like, like Seattle Mariners baseball, like baseball in general, like sports in general. Um, but for the team to be good and interesting, right? <laughs> Cause we've been waiting a long time in this town for this team to get interesting in the last three years have been really, really good. So good to be here. For sure, man. I, I've told this story a number of times, but my first Mariners memory is of the uh, opening day in 86 and Jim Presley hit a walk-off homer uh, to win the game. And I was a kid and Steve Slayton was my grandparents' next door neighbor. He was the uh, DJ of, uh, I believe it was KISW. And he saw this kid that loved baseball cards and brought him to the game. And those teams were bad, right? We had (laughs) horrible Mariners for years and years. And being a fan and being able to follow this team and specifically Julio and the pitching. And it's been, it's been super, super awesome. I'm super interested in your uh, kind of Mariners fandom or how you've become such a Mariners fan, because I think there are, there's a handful of people that I associate as kind of like those Mariners fans that are in the public. Right. And you associate the team them with the team and you're one of those guys. So how did you become a Mariners fan? Wow. So uh, I grew up in Tacoma. Um, so I was at a lot of those games that you were probably at in the eighties in the kingdom when the team was just bad. And, and the, the funnest part about the team was Dave Niehaus, you know, back when uh, the games were on KVI five seventy, and I'm sneaking to listen, you know, at seven years old when I'm supposed to be sleeping and that, that sort of thing. So it really just started with my dad, you know, it, with my dad wanting to play catch and getting out there. And I, I just love that. And he signed me up for, for uh for t-ball and and then you kind of move up the ladder and it was like um and there's a team here like that's kind of what it was like i loved baseball and then i i realized there's a team here that we can watch and we can go to and things like that and and i was just as much a a sonics fan as anything when i was a kid my dad was big on basketball and i used to get up every morning and go to school i'd walk down the hallway and i'd look over into the kitchen and all i wanted to see was two digits from my dad with his hand signals. And that was telling me how many points Gus Williams scored the night before, right? That's all I needed to know. Right. So then, then some baseball just like that started to, uh, started to blossom. Obviously the team wasn't any good. So uh, there wasn't any of that to, to kind of get behind, but baseball became the sport that uh, my dad and I, you know, became entangled in uh, together the most. And, uh, and that's kind of where my Mariner, you know, fandom, I uh, was born. Uh, funny story. Uh, I was so into uh, baseball and going to games and stuff. Like, I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but I was about eight years old and I saw this thing. I'm not sure if I saw it on TV 
or I heard about it on the radio, there was this thing you could do. And it, I'm not sure how long it lasted, but I got in big trouble for this. Mm-hmm. Where you could call this line, you could call this phone line and answer trivia questions and win tickets to games if you answered the uh, three trivia questions in a row right. And I would just answer all these questions right. So I kept calling and calling and calling. And little did I know it was $10 a minute. Oh, my goodness. Call. So, so my dad was like, you know anything about this phone bill? And I was like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want a bunch of tickets. And he's like, all right, that was it. And, and the phone bill was like $300, which back in 1982, that's a lot of money. But I had like nine pairs of Mariners tickets, you know, on the way with my name on them in the mail. Um, so I was just, I, I was hooked at, at a young age. And uh, I experienced 1995, like a lot of people did in this town where everybody has a story. Like, where were you? So I was at game four. But I wasn't at game five. Game five it took place on October 8th. That's my mom's birthday. Mm-hmm. So we were all at, at at home and we had friends and family over celebrating my mom's birthday. And here's my mom who really could care less about the Mariners, right? And everybody's watching the game. Nobody's, nobody's, it's not birthday time. It's Mariners time. You know, they, they hadn't been in this situation before. And uh, so I have that story just like, uh, just like everybody else in this town has that story with the Mariners. But you know, what has been really difficult for me, Tino is, Boy, when I when I went to work um, first at MLB um, in 06, uh, writing scripts for their highlight shows uh, online, and then at ESPN a couple of years later, I had to learn to shove my fandom aside. Mm-hmm. That was really, really difficult. I had an editor say, look, I know you're in Seattle. I know you're a Mariners guy, but you have to do everything you can to shove that aside right now. Um, this is a different animal um, you're going to be covering every team. And especially when you write about the Mariners, we're going to be, you know, we're going to look at this. This is going to get looked at two or three times just because And I was like, okay, I get it. It took me a couple of years to really get away from that. So my emotions usually only run high when everybody else's does. When people are jacked about this team or they're emotional about this team, that's when I get most excited. Um, so I don't go up and down with the wins and the losses like the typical fan will, but I feel the fan base. I feel the emotion of the fan base as I go. And I imagine, you know, you get that as well, where how you feel that day kind of depends on the reaction of the rest of the fan base, instead of it just being your own born kind of, oh man, I don't feel good about this team. It's like, well, nobody else does right now. So maybe I shouldn't either. Right. Absolutely. I, it's interesting because the, the Mariners cast is supposed to be, you know, as objective as I can be. Right. And sure. I have to get the we out of it because mm-hmm. I I'm used to referring to the Mariners as we, and as you know, I am admittedly a Mariners fan and grew up that. And that's why I'm passionate about talking about them. And it's still hard for me. I have to, I catch myself at times saying we, because I'm supposed to say the Mariners, right. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, well, I'm trying to remember what was it you said, you said something about, um, Well, first of all, I want to know who's your favorite player as a kid, Um, because we I think we're probably similar to the same, very close to the Mm. same. Yeah, I'm 49. I'm I'm high school class of 92. I was 21 in 95. So 
my favorite player growing up was Cal Ripken, and I wore number eight because of Cal Ripken. I just like the fact that he was quiet. I like the fact that he was a bigger shortstop mm-hmm. um, and can hit some home runs because a lot of shortstops. You remember back in the eighties, the shortstops were all Ozzy Smith like, right? It was Alvaro you know? Espinosa and Felix Fermin and guys like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So you get a guy like Ripken who really set it up for the nineties group, the Jeters and the Nomars and the A Rods. Um, so I was a big Cal Ripken guy, and and. And was for his entire career. I just thought he was he was one of the most respected players and, and respected the game and and was quiet and just went to work and kind of reminded me of my dad a little bit. That my, my dad just lunch pail, pick it up, go to work. Um, awesome. You know, forty five years at the same job. It just reminded me of my dad a lot. So I was a big Cal Ripken guy. Love it. I love it. I so my guy was Eric Davis. Oh, yeah. I love the, I've always been a sucker for the athlete, for the explosive guy, right? And Eric Davis was skinny and, you know, like rail thin, but had mm-hmm. tremendous power, tremendous wrists, was one of the first I remember, like the power speed combination was really, he was doing what Acuna is doing right now, back yeah. then, right? Um, that was my guy. Mike Jackson, the, the Mariners reliever was also, for whatever reason, one of my, I, I used to imitate him as a, uh, pitcher when I was young with the hat mm-hmm. low and, and trying to like act like I'm spitting out the tobacco. <laughs> um, but I remember what I was going to say. So my 95 story is I was a freshman at the university of Michigan and my hallway was like 70% New York kids, right? They put a lot of the kids from out of state in the same hallway mm-hmm. and we're watching this series together. And, you know, you barely know anybody. I I went there without knowing a soul. And so you're trying to make friends. You're insecure. I'm the one kid from Seattle, probably in the whole state, right, basically. And, but I was a trash talker. Garfield High School, like, I talked a bunch (laughs) of stuff. And that's how you communicated with people. And when the Mariners did what they did, I went up and down this hallway, pointing, talking smack, (laughs) laughing, yelling. And I had no allies, right? It was just me. I was on my own. And I remember the RA pulling me in and saying, look, I know you're excited. I know this is a big deal to you. You can't be this much of a jerk. I have to write you up for like basically disturbing the peace at this point in time. (laughs) But it's, you know, to this day, that's what those guys associate me with was being such a, like so excited about the Mariners in that moment and not giving a rip that I was surrounded by essentially Yankees fans. Mm. Um, one other quick note on that. The way I became friends with all those guys is at that point, I was 18, obviously. I could name the entire 25-man roster of the 86 Mets. And that was my way of having an in with these guys from New York. They're like, this guy's from Seattle, and he knows the whole 86 Mets team. That's nuts. Mm. But to your point, I think that remembering where you were and how you felt in 95 – and I, to a certain extent, 01, right? I think 01 mm-hmm. is its own thing. And, and I still see that as a disappointment in many ways. But um, it is interesting to think, where were you and how did that make you feel? Because, you know, moving it to the present, I think we're all wanting that feeling again. And we're all wondering, is does this team have um, kind of the base and have the ability to bring that feeling to us, right? And like this Dodgers series, right? It's sold out Saturday and Sunday. I think there's 5,000 tickets left for Friday. It's going to be intense. It's going to be insane. This is what I would consider to be the, at least the second best team in baseball, right? Um, and probably the best run organization in baseball, in my opinion, in mm-hmm. many ways. 
And this is what the Mariners measure themselves up against, right? Um, do you think this current iteration of the Mariners in 23 has the ability to take us on a ride like that, for one? And two, um, I guess we can move into, if it doesn't, what does this team need uh, to get there? Yeah, I, th- I think you can go both ways in this. I, I think once you reach the level of of where I think most of us believe Seattle is right now, it's really truly in anything is possible. I'm not one of those that just believes, hey, you get into the postseason, anything can happen. And while that's technically true, that's not the approach you want to you want your baseball team taking, right? You know, that's the Kevin Mather approach: win 85 <laughs> most years right. and hope you win 88 and sneak in and get lucky. And like that's not a plan for success, right? So you want you want your favorite baseball team gunning for 100 wins and winning a division and all that stuff. But it truly is that way. Once you reach a certain point, if you're like a 90 plus win team, especially in this day and age, you get to six. Uh, playoff spots, the, that extra wild card spot. There are a lot of teams are going to finish between like 87 and 92 wins. A lot of teams. And there's a chance that there's only one team or one division winner anyway that wins more than 92 games because the Twins aren't going to. Uh, it's no guarantee that the American League West team wins more than 92 games. It could just be the East, you know, at this particular point. So uh, you could have a lot of teams kind of bunched up. But I think once you get there, I look at the Seattle team, I say, do they have the starting pitching that could give them some kind of an edge, even in the short series? And the, the obvious answer to that is yes, absolutely. With Castillo and Gilbert and Kirby at the top, and maybe you shove a guy like Bryce Miller into the bullpen, or maybe even uh, uh, Brian Wu into the bullpen and make the bullpen stronger. Yeah, they do. Can they hit the ball out of the ballpark? Do they play defense? Can they run bases? The answer to all those questions is yes. And when you look back over the years, you look back at even last year's a national league, uh, you know, run in the playoffs there. You look at what Philly did really well. They hit the ball out of the ballpark and they had really good starting pitching. Those are the two. And they just did those two things really well and got all the way to the world series and had a chance to win it because of that. You don't have to be great in all facets. There aren't, I think Tampa might be the best team in the American league, but really other than Atlanta, even the Dodgers have their, their flaws, right? So when you're kind of comparing the Mariners team, they fit right in. I think Seattle might be the third best team in the American league. They might be somewhere between, you know, four and seven in all of baseball. I think they can. I, I think they have the guys in that lineup that can hit the ball out of the ballpark. They have balanced lefty righty balance. They have uh speed with, with Julio and, and guys on the bench and Dylan Moore and Caballero. And there's enough defense there, uh, both on the infield and in the outfield to, to be a factor, to take away runs. Um, the bullpen hasn't looked great, but I still like what you got to kind of tighten that up in the postseason. So it's really just a matter of getting in and then seeing, you know, who's healthy and who's ready to go. I think that's why winning the division would be such a, a major thing for Seattle, being able to, to get that extra rest and setting up their rotation against their first-round opponent. But, yeah, I do. I, I think this team is good enough to get to and win the World Series this year. And that may sound a little crazy because we've watched the Braves. You know, I think a lot of us saw this coming. At the beginning of the year, I had them as the best team in baseball, and it was like, this team is so loaded. It's not even funny. And they're playing like that. But you know what? I think in a long series – even the Braves are susceptible. They don't have dominant starting pitching. They have to score a ton of runs to win. And I just like, I'm not, I just don't think there's a team out there that's virtually unbeatable. I think Seattle can beat anybody right now. It's I agree. And I think for me, part of it is playoff baseball is different, right? Starting pitching matters more, right? Strikeouts matter in, in postseason baseball power matters in, in postseason baseball. And that's what the Mariners have. Right. That's what, 
you know, the starting pitching obviously is, in my opinion, best in baseball. And you've got, you know, maybe game four is literally like a uh, it's Bryce Miller and Brian Wu splitting the start. They mm-hmm. could take three innings if you needed to. And the bullpen, dis- despite the last month or so, or the perception of the last month or so, I will say, um, is still dominant in many ways. So I agree. I obviously Atlanta is super intimidating. They have the offense. I don't know, like outside of Strider, you've got Morton, who's a who's a vet. You know, you've got. Elder has been a revelation this season, but it's not, it's kind of an anomaly. It's not really who he is. To me, this team is as good as any. Um, How do you, so I have some very definitive reactions or strong reactions to those who've been critical of DePoto and critical of the moves both this season and in the previous off season. I think they've been phenomenal. I have a tremendous amount of respect. I'm glad the Mariners didn't go out and sign one of the $300 million shortstops right in the off season. I think that's proven out to be super smart and they're building in the right way. As a, as a fan, I want to see this team great for 10 years, right? I want to see this team be able to carry this pitching staff into all of their free agencies and try to prevent injury and then have, you know, kind of augment around Julio. And if you have a superstar that can carry you offensively in a series and you have the starting pitching and you have what I consider to be decent defense, right? I think JP is very overrated as a defender at this point in time. And um, the corn, you know, Eugenio Suarez is great at third base, but you've got some places that are great and some places that are not. But on average, I think a slightly above average defense. This team to me, yeah, I agree, can get hot and has proven in this last hot streak that they can they can win a championship. Um, is it likely? I don't think so. And I, I think what I hear you saying is there's a chance. I hear you not necessarily saying that you think that they will. Yeah, I don't think they're one of the favorites. But you know what? Like, that doesn't really seem to matter much anymore, does it? It, it really doesn't. Like, look what happened to the Dodgers last year. The Dodgers were the best team in the National League last year. Right. And and it didn't happen for them because they weren't playing good baseball at the time. Um, this is one of the issues I have with schedule. We, we like to look at the schedule. The Mariners have the toughest schedule remaining in the American League West. Yeah, but who? what do the pitching matchups look like? What are the trends like at the time? Is, are the teams playing good? Is this pitcher throwing the ball really well? Because normally we would look at a, a George Kirby start. Like most of the year, we look at a George Kirby start going into Friday night against the Dodgers as some kind of an advantage for Seattle most likely. Unless he's going up against the other team's ace, probably an advantage. But because he hasn't been sharp the last, well, since he threw the nine scoreless against Baltimore, he just hasn't looked the same. That's not necessarily like the Dodgers are probably looking their chops and thinking, we we see what's going on here. We see what we can do against a guy like Kirby. We're going to want to try to do that. I don't feel as, as confident. So it's it's the timing of it all. And the same thing is the case in the postseason. The Dodgers got to the postseason last year, and it just wasn't clicking. You know, maybe this year's different. And you get a team like the Phillies. How many games did the Phillies win last year in the regular season? Like 86, 88? Uh, yeah, they didn't win 90 games. Uh, so it, it really just is what happens once you get there. And, and I think as long as your team is capable – of doing the things that we've seen that it takes to get through a postseason. And and I think this is big too. Seattle now has a taste of it. Those players, that staff, 
they know what it looks like. They know what it feels like. And they know what it takes to win a series, to win playoff games. They know what it's like to lose a game one, nothing in, in a thousand innings at home. They know what all that's like. So it's not foreign to them anymore. I thought the series win against Toronto last year was huge for this year and huge for next year, even, even into the regular season, they get down the stretcher and you're playing Texas and you're playing Houston. Maybe the division's on the line, maybe a playoff spots on the line. They can draw back from last year, the, the, the stretch drive, the last couple of years, and especially that series in Toronto to kind of tell them, Hey, you know, we've done this before. There's no reason to go into this game nervous. We should go into this feeling really good. And I just, when you think about the weapons, the Mariners have, I look across the American league and I just don't see a team that's clearly better than them. So it's really just about what is going on at the time the playoffs start, you know, can they, can they flip the switch and kind of like they did last year, you know, but you're right. I I think one of your questions at the start of this conversation was what, what are they missing? I think every team in baseball is missing something mm-hmm. like you even look at the Dodgers Dodgers, one of the, the, the three best teams in the league, probably number two behind the Braves. The Braves are even missing. We just alluded to it. The starting rotation, not great. Uh, I think that's probably what's missing in LA. They've had the injuries with Walker Bueller and the thing with uh, Urias and, and Dustin may, they don't have that guy at the top of the rotation. That's that's dominant. They go seven or eight in a key situation. They don't have a Cy Young candidate. So uh, every team has their thing or their things, that aren't necessarily great. I think that's what's great about the game of baseball right now. There is a lot more parity than there was 15, 20, 25 years ago. I don't think we're going to see this whole Giants win three titles in, in six years. Uh, the Red Sox win four titles in 15. I don't think we're going to see that for a while. I think it's going to take, uh, and, and obviously we have two Astros titles in six years, but I think that's probably the last of it. I, I think these new wild cards uh, the expanded uh, playoffs is giving more teams an opportunity and enough of those teams are trying to take advantage of it. And I think that's creating more parity. It's a lot more NFL like, and I like the result of that, to be honest with you. It's fun. It is. I have a question for you about Kirby. Well, statement and a question. So I guess question one is philosophically we see, we've seen in baseball specifically right-handed starters add a sinker that they're throwing high right and inside and trying to jam right-handed hitters and it's something Kirby's done really really well where he's four seamer at the top of the zone and then sometimes mixing in same velocity sinker that's coming in and jamming hitters right you see Brian Wu incorporating it you've even seen the sinker from Bryce Miller at times and it seems to be a philosophical thing with the Mariners that they're teaching this also the splitter that he's taken on that I love because I think he was too hittable in the zone and too predictable. Now he's got a pitch he can't control as well to lefties, and I think it's a really good pitch for him. I guess the first question for you is, what have you seen with um, George Kirby in these last few starts? Because I thought he was going to even, he's going to elevate his game even more with the with the uh, introduction of that splitter to lefties and being less predictable and having less, I guess, a little less command, even if that's intentional. And then can you talk to me a little bit about like, that Mariners, because you're more tuned into it than I am, the philosophy of teaching that high sinker um, from a hard-throwing right-hander and and where that came from. Yeah, so you know what's really fascinating? If you ever get an opportunity to to track down the driveline uh, Mm -hmm. video on on who are the candidates for throwing, or the best candidates to add a sinker to their repertoire. And what Seattle's done uh, to, to some extent is kind of buck the trend. Like generally it's about spin efficiency with the four seamer. If the spin efficiency fits in a certain range, like the the two seamer, the sinker probably makes sense for this pitcher to add. But 
Kirby doesn't really fit into that range. Wu doesn't really fit into that range. Uh, Gilbert and Miller don't fit into that range. Castillo doesn't really fit into that range, but they all have workable two seamers. I mean, I kind of have a thing with StatCast where they, they call all two seamer sinkers. And I, I just think that they're, they're two different pitches. I think sinkers literally sink. That's the main idea of it. And some, you know, two seamer, it's just running it in on righties and away to lefties. And I think what Kirby's doing is he's using that pitch. Like there are a lot of times in, in, in the second half of the season, especially he's been basically 70% fastballs to, to right-handed batters and he'll be 35, 40% four seamer and then 25, 30% two seamer. And it's just giving that hitter another look. It's literally being able to work horizontally, you know, getting pitches to move in on it and then use the slider, you know, some sort of breaking ball to work away from the right-handed batter. You can think back to, uh, to Felix Hernandez. He had a problem most of his career working away from right-handed batters. That was, if he had a weakness in his day in his prime, that was probably it. And when he added that, uh, that, that hard changeup, he started throwing that against everyone. And that kind of equalized, that kind of negated the issue that he'd been having and throwing changeups and split fingers is in this day and age, it's really dangerous because the home run ball is so prevalent. I mean, you hang a splitter at 85, it's getting hit 400 feet, you know, quite often. And, and that's why we don't see, uh, uh, Kirby throwing that pitch a whole lot. Although I think he's developing a better one. We're seeing Logan Gilbert use his a little bit more, but that, that two seamer that, that, uh, that George Kirby, it's really just about giving hitters a different look, righty, lefty. Uh, and he does use it about 30% of the time against right-handed batters because right now George Kirby's kind of where Logan Gilbert was a year ago. The secondary stuff isn't quite where you want it to be. Like that curveball of Kirby's really like it. I think a slider, the cutter slider has, has a good chance, but right now he needs just about everything to his strength that he can find. And it seems to be fastball, fastball command. So if he can throw 65, 70% fastballs and get outs at a high rate, he should probably do that. That's his strength. So giving the hitter a different look, something with some different movements, some late movement to the arm side, maybe a little bit of sync to it as well, something a little different than the four-seamer, and then he can throw that uh, that breaking ball or that cutter to move away to give them to give righties a different look. I just think that's what it's all about at this point. And and he's throwing it to uh, to lefties a little bit, but he's mostly four-seamer slider curveball to lefties, and he's mostly four-seamer sinker to right-handed batter. So it's really interesting though if if you uh if you think about like I look at Brian Wu and I think, man, that that two seamer he's doing, that sinker, he's it's really a true sinker. It has two seam run, but it has really good sink too. And 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 seeing the way that Kirby uses it and the way that Wu uses it is entirely different. Wu will use it mostly at the bottom of the zone. Castillo will use it mostly at the bottom of the zone, running away and running down. But Kirby will, like you said, will use it up because it's really just about the horizontal movement. So that tells me that Wu's pitch is really a sinker. Castillo's pitch is really a sinker. And Kirby's is really a two-seamer. He's looking for that side-to-side run so he can work the slider and the four-seamer off of it. So it's really fascinating to see how different teams and and, uh, and as organizations and pitchers themselves um, differ in in what they go after. And, and because it's really been about the four-seamer up in the zone for like the last five, 10 years, you know, getting guys to chase just a little bit out of the zone. And Seattle does that, that, that rotation and, and, and even in the bullpen, those guys do it just about as much as anyone. But right now you get pitch develop. Pitch development is very much about, all right, what does this pitcher bring to the table? What is he good at? Is he good at creating spin? Is he good at creating, uh, you know, arm side run and, and, and carry on hard stuff? Then, then let's go four seamer sinker cutter. 
instead of trying to get wrist action that he doesn't have so he can throw a better breaking ball, things of that nature. So I think right now that's what's going on with Kirby. But ultimately, I think that curveball is going to be a plus pitch for me. He's going to be a a four-pitch guy. I don't remember the start, but there was one start where he started the first couple of innings. He threw a ton of curveballs, and it looked – it was a beautiful pitch, and he had – clearly had a great feel for it in that moment. And I had that same thought in that start. I was like, this is, he needs to throw this pitch a lot more. This is mm-hmm. might be his second best pitch. Um, with one of the highlights or one of the things I'll remember from the 23 season is the develop, like the development in front of our eyes of Brian Wu and Bryce Miller as pitchers, right? When Bryce Miller was first up, he was throwing 70% four seamers, right? And everyone was like, how the heck is he so successful with this one Obviously, there's the, it's the high spin rate and it's a beautiful pitch, but how is he succeeding with this one pitch so so much? Now we've seen him add the sinker. Obviously, we've seen him throw a lot more sliders, and he throws, I believe, he throws two kind of different sliders. Right, he's got the gyro mm-hmm. and more like slider. Brian Wu has introduced a bunch of stuff, but it's that's one of the things I will remember most about this season is is their development, and I think it's. Um, I'm thankful that the Mariners didn't deal any any of the pitching away at the deadline as people were. I almost pulled, honestly, bro, I almost lost it when people were talking about trading <laughs> Logan Gilbert for Brandon Donovan. Oh, like, dude. You're talking about dealing for a utility dude who can get on base that doesn't have much pop, is like bottom 10% defensively mm. for this amazing arm. Like, what are you, have you lost your mind? When the foundation of your organization is your starting rotation, Yes, and, and that's what your organization is best at. You don't do it. You don't do that. Oh. Now, if you want to go out and and move a Logan Gilbert over the off season, and you're bringing back a perennial all star, we can have that conversation, and it can make yeah. a lot of sense. It can absolutely make a lot of sense during the middle of a season. Absolutely no sense at all. Seattle could have pulled the trigger there. They could have. I was told they could have. Uh, they could have traded for either Lars Newbar or Brendan Donovan for Logan Gilbert plus some some other pieces. Or they could have got, they could have acquired both of them for Logan Gilbert and a prospect. And Seattle just wasn't interested in doing that. Those talks did not go very far at all. That was the Cardinals trying to get the Mariners to bite out of desperation. It was just never going to happen. My joke was uh, JP Morosi was like a Cardinals employee at that point. In time. Yeah. <laughs> I talked about, I'm like, dude, they're not doing this unless Jordan Walker is the player you're talking about. Right. There's yep. no conversation here. Right. You talk about the one thing I will say is, if you, for me, when I look at the the, the free agent class in the offseason, you've got, you don't have a lot of hitters. You've got some pitchers. You certainly have Blake Snell. Some of us mm-hmm. love him. Some of us don't. Local kid, obviously. Tremendous season this season. You mm-hmm. can debate as to where the walks are coming from and why he walks so many guys. But would it behoove the Mariners to deal from this strength and then go out and use the financial might to sign someone and bring them in, right? If you can't acquire a bat through free agency, um, could you potentially trade for one and then go out and sign a pitcher? Um, that was one thought I had leading up to the deadline. So I was trying to figure out what they were going to do. But mm. I'm so thankful they didn't make a move with the Cardinals because, again, unless Jordan Walker is the player you're talking about, there's there was no one that in that organization, maybe a Mason win, but there was very few people in that organization that would have improved the Mariners this year 
and that you would have given up a Brian Wu, Bryce Miller, or a Logan Gilbert for. I, mm. I like I said, I was about to pull my hair out. I was not, <laughs> especially especially Kirby Gilbert Castillo. Those are your three guns at the top. Sure. Obviously, Bryce Miller, Brian Wu have a chance to kind of join that group as mid rotation or better guys in the future. I actually think, you know, looking forward over the next couple of years, Bryce Miller is the most likely to get moved. Not that I think any of them are likely to get moved, but I think he's probably the guy. I think Brian Wu is so unique that as long as he stays healthy, uh, he's going to be a guy they want to they want to keep. He'll have a lot of value, but he's going to be a guy they want to keep. Um, but yeah, you know, like I heard a lot of Nolan Gore. What about Nolan Gorman? Because he can play second base. Well, I mean, he can stand out there at second base. Like you and I can stand out there at second but base. Mark has played second base for a while, right? That's exactly the comp, dude. Absolutely. That's exactly the comp. Like you'll get away with it for a little while, but he can't be your second baseman, you know, next year. Like, like if that's your plan, no, that doesn't work. But you know what? That conversation, at least around that player, changes over the offseason because you got to consider first base, third base for upgrades for this team when you're looking toward next year. You know, Ty France really slumping. He really hasn't been himself in over a year. And with Suarez, like he's regressed kind of where he was, you know, prior to the trade those last couple of years in Cincinnati, although it's less about power uh, than anything else. So wonder where that's gone. We don't know what Suarez is going to look like. The Mariners might have a decision to make. So a guy like Nolan Gorman could make some sense, just not really at second base. So when you're looking at, you're looking toward trading a Kirby or a Gilbert or even a Bryce Miller or Brian Wu, you just have to be really careful who you're trading for. I'm really big, Tino, on when you make a trade, don't focus on what your team gave up. Focus on what you got back because you are not going to miss Noelvi Marte and Edwin Arroyo if Luis Castillo is really good, and he's been really good. So right. yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm not really missing Noelvi Marte's presence at this point. No, you know? I, so I love – and I'm a, I am love Marte. Like I went mm-hmm. – I'm in Walla Walla. I went to Tri-Cities to watch him when he was with Everett playing against the Dust Devils in Tri-Cities. Mm-hmm. I, I still love him. I do a minor league ranks myself. And for me, I was always high man on Noelby, right? I mm-hmm. love him. when you can trade for an ace, especially one that's willing to sign a five-year extension at a below market rate. Like where would we be without Castillo this year? Yeah. It's, yeah. you have to make that deal, right? You have yeah. to, with regards to, to Suarez, how much do you value his defense, right? He metrics say he's basically a top 10%, you know, in mm-hmm. elite defender at third, we all know low, you know, 220. You can predict 220, 25 home runs, probably a low 700s OPS, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, an OPS guy, but that's that's where he's gonna land. Um for me, the upgrade has to be at first base. I would think about third base, but I if Suarez is your third baseman next year, that's something I think you can deal with, knowing that there are some reinforcements on the way through the minor leagues next mm-hmm. or the year after. First base is the one for me. I, I personally want to see them resign Tail, right? I think Tail's been a what they could have expected from him, especially given what we gave up to get him from the Blue Jays, right? Mm. DH needs to be addressed. Mike Ford has been great this year. I don't know if Mike Ford is going to be that in 24. Sure. A championship sure. team probably needs, you know, an upgrade there. He's I think about like how Morris and Dave Magadin, I know we're from the same era, those types of mm. guys. Not the same sort of player, Kevin Moss, but mm-hmm. left-handed bats that I remember as a kid being a first baseman or a DH who put up good stats, but, but are not necessarily a part of championship type teams, right? Right. Um, right. So to me, it's first base first. That's first priority. Resigning tail. And then 
if the Mariners can find a third base upgrade, sure. But I don't want to see them shell out $200 million from Matt Chapman. Right, right? sure. Yeah. Right, like a half step above what you have in Eugenio Suarez. And a risky one at that. Yeah, right. I, I'm with you there. I got to think of it this way. I, I think now I don't know what's truly going to be out there. But I think if I were to prioritize just, you know, in a vacuum, second base is still the priority for me. I'd really like Josh Rojas to be a utility guy. I'd really like Caballero to be the 27th guy. Right. But so I put second base. If you can find a legitimate everyday second baseman that's entering his prime, I think that would be the prior. I just don't know. I don't know if that's out there anywhere. But think about a guy like Gorman. We'll go back to the Cardinals thing with Gorman. Ignore what it might cost. But a guy like Gorman a left-handed hitter, think about adding him to the club. Now, he can be in the lineup with Eugenio Suarez and Ty France. He can play for Suarez. He can play for France. Mm-hmm. And he's a lefty. So when you look at what's going on with Eugenio Suarez this year, like against right-handers, while he has most of his home runs against right-handed uh, pitching, that's because he has, you know, 430 plate appearances or 500 plate appearances out of his 630 are against righties. But he's actually hitting lefties, you know, for average, you know, a lot better. Like he's been 15, 16, 20% better, you know, pretty much most of the year against lefties. And that happens when guys tend to get a little older and they have the longer swings. Mm -hmm. Think about being able to hedge that bet a little bit with Ty France, with who who has splits for the first time in his career as well. Uh, Being able to sit those guys a little bit. Uh, You could do a Josh Rojas Gorman swap out for France and Suarez uh, against certain right-handed pitchers. Like you can keep both of those guys on the team and, and still add a guy that fills in and makes the production at those, uh, at those positions look a lot better. So maybe it's one guy, maybe it's two, but for me, it's like whatever, whatever position you can find the best deal for the best hitter. Like, like for me, that's it, whether it's second base or third base or first base or outfield and you rotate the other players into DH, to be honest with you, I don't really care what it is. It, it wouldn't disappoint me if Ty France is the, the starting first baseman next year. It wouldn't disappoint me if Eugenio Suarez was a starting third baseman. If we look at that lineup and they've added an impact bat to it, I really don't care where it takes place. I don't think they should have an everyday DH. But that doesn't mean that the player they grab, whether he's a first baseman or a third baseman or an outfielder or a combination, can't be one of the DHs on a given day. So that's kind of the way I look at at what they're missing offensively right now. I, I'm not where you are on Teoscar Hernandez. Uh-huh. If it were me, I don't think it's egregious to, to tender Teoscar Hernandez the QO, and if he accepts it, just keep him. I don't think it's egregious to do that. With $20 million, that's not how I would run this baseball team. I think I could spend that $20 million better, but again, I don't think it's a big deal. If you want to go do that because you believe in Teoscar and he wants to be here, you know, to be honest with you, if he wants to be here and he wants to sign a three-year deal, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world either. But I would spend that $20 million differently. If it's 60 over three. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a couple of, I disagree with you on a couple of things. One is what else are you going to get for your $20 million? Right. Mm -hmm. On the market, right? This is we're not talking about young players. We're not talking about trades. We're talking about on the market. What else are you getting for 20 million? First of all, I think he is exactly what you expected to get from him. You knew he's going to be streaky. You know, he you knew he could hit lefties. He's faster than I expected him to be. His defensive metrics are better than I expected him, although the eye test says he's lazy as hell in right field. Um but I don't think he's a I, – I think he is a very good – he's a slightly above average right fielder for me offensively. And with 
class a whatever you think of class a with class a on the way right you you know he's probably on the way um i i would love to see them sign him to the to a one-year deal would be great but mm-hmm. if it's 20 or if it's 60 over three i don't necessarily have a problem with that what i will disagree with is if ty france is on this freaking team next year i'm gonna be pissed because he even at his peak he's still to me he's like a right-handed mark grace right Minus the defense, even, and sure. those—he's not your prototypical first base. He's no, not. those teams don't. Those teams typically don't win when you don't get big production there. And I know this is an old school thing to say, but he's a to me at at his peak next year he would be a two eighty hitter with if you're lucky twenty home runs at mm-hmm. first base, right? Mm-hmm. I I want I want to see them do better there. I I, I think even putting Mike Ford and a right handed lefty killer there is better than Ty France. Mm. Rojas Could be. is Could be. I don't know what to do with Ty France though to be honest with you cuz there's not a lot of value right now on Ty France. It doesn't like matter. all the t- all the twins and rays wanted to give you was uh, a double A prospect well, at the deadline. That's why they didn't pull the trigger. It didn't make any sense. Works for me but you you're probably better off just in a, in 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 a in a vacuum keeping France even if you replace his his some of his at bats. And seeing if he flips back to where he was a year ago and then trying to move him at the deadline. Like you have to get better offensively. I don't think you need to get rid of Ty France to get significantly better offensively. That That's just where I stand. The thing with tail though, to me is he's going to be 31 this winter. He has taken a step back athletically. That is very, very clear. He's swinging and missing more than ever. Right. Um, at least since on his first year in Toronto on sliders. Yes, yeah. And, and while he's been hot the last couple of months, he's still been 20% worse this year than he was a year ago. I don't like the trend here at all, considering he's going to be 31. So I'm out on anything multi-year completely out on anything multi-year, but the, the QO thing, I would tender him the queue if I knew I could trade him. If I knew that I got to a point in the offseason where I queued him, he accepted. Here I am in February. I've added this player and this player. I don't need Teoscar, and I know I can move him to. I would tender him the QO if if I got to a point in the offseason when I had to make that decision where I was like, well, I'm going to be able to trade him for something, a reliever or something, and maybe get the maybe get a year of Eric Swanson back. You know, so to speak. If you got if you got the reliever back, then you're really getting back what it is that you gave up for him. And it, mm-hmm. I'm not an Adam Mackle believer myself, but you're yeah, you get something back for him that you traded. I the other not bone to pick, but the other question for you is. Does Josh Rojas? We can pick bones. Pick him. We can pick bones. It's fine. Look, so on the Mariners cast, I've been highly critical of Josh Rojas. To me, he is like maybe a third of a tick up from Colton Wong, and I know that's an insult. But and I know he got hot for a minute, but I don't. From what I've seen from him statistically this season, especially prior to joining the Mariners, is not something that I would want long term on my roster right so it's, yeah, he should be a part-time guy yes if, yeah. if not, right because i think i think you're still looking for the upgrade on him even if he is a part-time guy mm-hmm. um i'm interested so i want to maybe transition a little bit into some of the minor leagues and some of the stuff that's coming on the way what is your opinion of ryan bliss what do the mariners have in him i know his numbers haven't been great in triple a he's provided some tremendous highlights in triple a but he's also a couple of years ahead of all this huge wave of Mariners talent, right? Mm. Mariners have invested a tremendous amount of draft capital in middle infielders. We know that, right? You've got 
Cole Young, obviously. You've got Cole Emerson. You've got Ty Pete, who I think is a third baseman ultimately, but you have mm-hmm. him too. You have Michael Arroyo. The big one to me is you have Felden Celestin as well, right, that people don't talk about. I think they're sleeping on. Might be the most talented of all those names. And you have Ryan Bliss, who's four years older than most of them, mm-hmm. is hitting some big home runs in AAA, is playing phenomenal defense in AAA. To me, he was... I like Canzone's bat. I think he makes tremendous contact. I think he's a bad defender and he's making highlight plays because he's slow and not. Canzone might be the first baseman in a year. Yes. I'd be happy with that, right? If he plays the Mike. I just want the bat to develop, right? Great. But so I guess the question is first, Ryan Bliss, what do the Mariners have in him, in your opinion? And then two, you've got this wave of play. And and I can't wait to get into Lazaro Montes with you because I love him. I think he's Mm. fun. I think he's great. Um, I don't like comping players to Jordan Alvarez. I know everyone's been doing that, <laughs> right. but big and left-handed, but mm-hmm. he's he's showing out right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess let's start with Bliss, and then we can talk about some of the some of the minor league players that are on the way. Yeah, w- when they acquired Bliss, that the first thing I did was the first thing I do is I go old school. I, I want somebody who's seen him, uh, right. who's coached him, who's managed him uh, for an extended period. So um, I got with Arizona. And, and got, they love the kid. Absolutely love the kid. Uh, he'll work. He plays with a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he can run. He's not a, uh, he's not a big time. He's not a 70 runner or anything, but he's probably 55, 60, somewhere in there. Uh, quick enough plays a, plays an above average to, to the plus second base. Uh, a smart base runner. So while he's not going to steal 60 bags, he might still 20 out of 23. Uh, always take that extra base, always a threat to get a triple, always a, a threat to stretch, uh, to stretch a, a blooper into a, into a double. And the power is surprising. And what, what's interesting is, you know, I went down immediately and watched him at Tacoma. That's awesome. I sat on him. I, I, I sat awesome. on him for five days and he hit four balls over 105 miles an hour to straightaway right field. He's a right-handed batter at five foot six, five foot seven, just absolute big time torque from line to line. I don't think he's gonna a guy that's gonna hit 20 home runs a year or anything. And I know he's hit 20 in triple A this year, but and he started off a little like hit and miss. Like he'd go, you know, two for five, oh for four, two for five, you know, two for five, and then he'd go one for sixteen. You know, that was his kind of his early days in Tacoma. But the last three weeks, and I was just uh see if I can remember this. I was just talking about this on my show uh a couple of days ago. Uh, over a 17 game span, um, through I believe Wednesday's games, he was hitting 311, 433, 605 with five homers and just nine strikeouts and 81 plate appearances. I believe it was that is the kind of stretch that's going to earn you looks, and I think that's what we're looking at. We're basically looking at a guy who he's a different player, a different kind of player. But we're basically looking at a guy who, at worst, is going to be on the radar to be part of the second base solution next year. I don't think he's an everyday guy long term, but if he's your Jose Caballero next year and you get more offense out of that position, you don't lose any defense and you don't lose a lot of base running, you've upgraded your roster. Yep. And I think that's what the Mariners have in Ryan Bliss, at least for 2024. We'll see. Like those players that that just don't have the size and the power doesn't come as easy and they have to commit more to their – like the Dustin Pedroia conversation comes up. Like there's a lot of effort in the swing, and I think he's got some holes at the top of the zone. But, um, you know, really good player. Uh, the team loves him. Uh, a work ethic guy, a good, not great athlete, but it can definitely play second, can fill in it short a little bit. 
Uh, I'm a Ryan Bliss fan. I think ultimately he's a, he's a part-time guy. He's a utility guy, right. but maybe one that can play second, third, short, maybe even some outfield eventually and be part of some really good teams. And, and, and he will surprise you with his opposite field power. I'm like, here's another rocket to right field. What are we doing here? Like, <laughs> right. Who is this guy? Like, this right. is pretty incredible. You just typically those guys want to get to their power and they're trying to get to their pole side, right? You're five foot six and 160 pounds. You know, I feel like it's me out there. Like, I, I can't do that. Like, like this is weird. Is this wiffle ball? Like, what's going on here with this guy? So, uh, really fun player, really uh, interesting uh, player. And he was, uh, he was. I got some interesting feedback from scouts around the league on Bliss. I got some guys that were just not on him at all. They were just like, he's just not a big leaguer in any role for me. And then I got guys that are like, the guys that are telling you they're not on him are crazy. Like this guy is something. I don't know, he's not an everyday guy, but this guy is something because he's not going to stop until he is. So it sounds like, so I got to see him at the Futures game. I did come across the mountains for the Futures game, which is a blast. That was like mm. a bucket list thing for me was to go to one of those. And he was one of those players where I knew the organization. I knew the name. I didn't know a lot about him. And you're like, who the heck is this dude, right? And he's diminutive. You look at him, you're like, he yeah. doesn't belong out there, right? But- what I hear you saying, and this is kind of where I land, is a 400 plate appearance maybe sits against tough righties, 450 plate appearances maybe in the at his peak. But if you have a Josh Rojas on the team, right, who can take some of those at-bats against tough righties, he's an asset. And then you're mm-hmm. utilizing Rojas in the situations where – you know, he's probably most effective, right? And you're getting the best out of both of those guys. I know that's not a, as a Mariners fan, that's not what you want to hear, right? You want your second baseman to be the everyday guy. You want him to produce. Uh-huh. But that platoon might actually be something that's super effective. Um, I love him. I think that the Mariners, I I, I like a team, not a full team, but I, the, they can use that grinder type of dude, right? It's a smart, like Caballero's base running, I know he's fast. Mm-hmm. I know what the what the, uh, what the savant page says about his speed, but I have never seen a player play so little and make so many base running errors. Right, all yeah. the adages of don't make the you know the first to third out at third and all those other things right. are like completely mm-hmm. over his head. And Bliss is the type of player, from what I've read and what I've seen, that doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. Right, even right. that would be an upgrade. Um, I pulled up the Modesto game from today, right? <laughs> 13-4, they won, advanced to the championship. Mm. And you look at these names, right? Rodden is the third baseman. He's leading oh. off. Which hitter, which toss state? I think he was a, was he a like a fourth-year senior, I think? Yep. Um, Mariners got, you know, a grinder, a really good player. They got him in the draft this year. Farmelo is his first, I think this was his second game, right? Yeah, he's really early in it. Yeah, just a couple of games in. He's hitting in a two-hole. Colt Emerson, we've seen all the Twitter highlights. He's hitting three. He went three for six with three RBIs. Lazaro Montes is hitting fourth. Ty Pete's DHing hitting fifth, two for six. Luis Suis Bell, you've got Arroyo hitting seventh. He's getting a lot of these guys, you know, are 18, 19 years old too. Ty P, 17, 18, years old. Emerson, 18. Arroyo, 18. And they're dominating in full season ball. It's nuts. And okay, so let me, I have so many questions for you, bro. Like, I guess the, the, what I, the first one I want to ask, I get excited about this, is I had some interaction with both friends and online with people who were critical of the Mariners 
farm system because of the ranks in the moment earlier in this season. And my argument with them, because they were, you know, ranked between 20 and 30. And what I said was, one, proximity matters, in my opinion, too much to these ranks. So they talk about who's on the way soon. The Mariners' talent is in, the hitting talent is way low in the minors right now, for one. Mm. For two, I could give two you-know-whats about minor league ranks. It's about player development. And when you go through this Mariners roster and you look at who's been developed in-house, you realize how well they are developing their players, pitching and hitting, right? And I think that's proving out when you look at this team. When you look at this Modesto lineup and you see these names and you realize that I believe the Mariners are going to use all of their picks on pitching in this next draft, right? Mm -hmm. I know the draft is 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 deep in hitting as well, but I expect them to go heavy in pitching and build the system back up pitching wise. But I look at this lineup and you've got probably when I look at it, I'm I would guess there's at least two or three major league regulars on this Modesto in this Modesto lineup today. Mm. They I give the the Mariners front office all the credit in the world for putting this together, right? I would watch, I want to watch this game almost as much as I'm want, I want to watch the Mariners game, right? Because it's <laughs> so much fun. What is your, do you disagree with anything I said about the Mariners um, kind of philosophy in building their team and, and where their minor leagues stand right now and what the talent level looks like right now? What is your perspective on that? Um, what kinds of things do you think that they can do better? What things do you agree with, with with what they're doing philosophically speaking? It's really difficult to dislike it. Like I went into this year's draft, you know, thinking, man, in perfect world, they get a couple of arms somewhere between round one and three college arms to to kind of replenish that, right? Um, to where they can look up in the middle of next season or toward the end of next season and go, this guy's this guy can come help us right now. But that just didn't happen. And 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 it didn't happen because when the Mariners picks came up, the next college guy on the board didn't belong there mm-hmm. and they just weren't going to overdraft guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give like, I think early on Jerry DePoto's biggest, uh, his, his biggest asset, his best skill, his best attribute as a general manager, as a president of baseball operations was creativity. Mm-hmm. I think the last three or four years, it's been discipline. It's been the trades he has not made. It is staying the course with their philosophy in the draft and knowing what pieces of their player development department to trust most and what fits here and what fits here. Because early on, we saw them go the, the college route with pitchers a lot. It was, yeah, it was originally, it was what Kyle Lewis was their first, first round pick. And then it was Evan white and then Sam Carlson in round two in 2017. And then it was Logan Gilbert and then Kirby with Campbell and, and, uh, and Williamson, you know, coming in behind those guys a little lower in those two drafts. And, you know, and then lately it's been a bunch of prep guys and it's like, wait a second here, but where's the pitching? They're drafting the best players available that fit their system. And they're really good at identifying um, not just talent, the right kind of talent to fit their organization, what their their organization believes in and what their organization is actually good at developing and, and, and kind of curating along. Because we've been talking about the Modesto lineup. 
But earlier in the year, that Modesto lineup was Cole Young and Gabriel Gonzalez as well, and they've been tearing it up to, to, to certain levels in Everett already. You get 18, 19, 20-year-old guys in Everett. I mean, Harry Ford started the year there. He's 20. Cole Young turned 20 during the season, and, and Gonzalez isn't even 20 yet. So you have three guys there that have a chance to to play in double A next year before they're 21. And then you have the group that's in Modesto now that has a chance to end next year in Everett as 19 and 20 year olds. It's not just that Modesto team. We're starting to see a trend here, just like we saw that trend with those college arms moving through the system really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think Scott, uh, Scott Hunter, Jerry DePoto and that group are really good at basically self-scouting at the end of the day. Uh, what what do we like here? What are we good at here? Like if we draft this player, is he kind of on his own because we don't really know exactly what to do with this player? Or are we going to be able to really, truly help this player? Do we have a plan for this player? Do we have experience uh, developing players like this? I mean, I'm telling you, Colt Emerson. I was just talking to a buddy of mine tonight. Mm-hmm. Colt Emerson. Colt Emerson is the best prospect in this organization. Really? I get, yeah, right. And now, uh, Felding uh-huh. Celestin can change my mind when he gets on the field. Uh-huh. That's absolutely possible. Uh-huh. Uh, because I'd say just raw upside-wise, Celestin's the top guy. Sure. But Colt Emerson right now is the biggest sure thing in this organization, which is incredible considering he's 18 years old and he's only played like 40 games in his professional career. That What's swing is magic. What is his position? Does it matter? Hitter? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it always matters to some extent, but yeah. I think ulti- like right now I could see him playing some second base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shortstops is certainly not going to be in his long-term future, but I can see him playing some second base and kind of being the Corey Seager of second baseman, so to speak, where he's not great there, but he makes all the the routine plays, yeah. which is essentially what Cal Ripken did most of his you know his career, right? So you get guys like that, and they have value there because they just don't make a lot of mistakes and they hit. Yeah, um, but it, he might be be, be a guy you can profile at third base. Ultimately, there's going to be some power to come along in that swing. Like it's a, it's a different uh, operation than Cole young. Emerson's a little bigger guy, a little stronger guy. um, And the, the, the bat speed comes a little easier. We're just talking about Ryan bliss where you have to put a lot of effort to get to the bat speed. Cole young has to do that. So we're not talking about a 20 homer guy, probably in Cole young, but Colt Emerson, I'd be surprised if he didn't turn into a 20 plus home run guy. So if he lands at, at third base, you might be getting a, uh, a better pure hitter, but you might be getting Kyle Seeger power out of it too. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, that swing is absolutely gorgeous. Like I love Cole young swing. Colt Emerson's swing makes Cole young look like an ugly duckling. It is. It is. So I wa like, I can't, put my finger on it either like i've heard i've heard comps like jd drew mm-hmm. um steve finley players like that yeah. but i really like the the i really like the carlos gonzalez i really like carlos gonzalez as a as an offensive comp i know they play different positions uh alex gordon oh. as oh. as a as an offensive comp i really like those two there is a swing that i have seen sometime in my 49 years on this planet <laughs> that colt emerson swing is a spitting image of tino and i cannot put my finger on it it's driving me bananas for the last wow. month or so i will figure it out but it is it is unbelievable i put up a on twitter uh on thursday night i put up uh, uh emerson's three hits from from that that game that advanced for modesto 
he was three for six. The first one was a double. All of them were hit hard. One of them was a a, a hot shot, 101 mile an hour liner to left field. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one, he almost took the, the pitcher's head off, hitting the ball up the middle at 104 miles an hour. This kid is 18 years old. Yeah, I, I have no problem right now already saying Colt Emerson is the best prospect in this system right now. It is, it's pretty remarkable. Well, and he rose, if I'm not mistaken, he rose very quickly kind of at the end uh, leading up to the draft. There were people who expected that he might go even higher than he did. And a month prior, I believe, he wasn't really rated quite as high as a prospect. I, It's interesting because I trust this organization to develop pitching, right? I think they've proven that they can develop pitching. And when you look at the hitters, you think, you know, okay, Julio is probably going to develop in every organization. It doesn't matter where you want to capitalize on it, but he's that kind of talent. And, you know, Cal Raleigh, I don't know. I don't know enough about his actual like day-to-day development within the organization, but you look at what they're starting to do to your point. There's this, like they're per it's percolating, right? You've got this huge infusion of offensive talent. And to your point, yeah, I brought up the Modesto lineup, but yeah, Harry Ford has been the one that's been number one on most, on most lists, right? Gabriel Gonzalez for fantasy players, like he's a bat first corner mm-hmm. field player that has 30 home run potential, right? Mm-hmm. And has a, a above average hit tool. That's what we all look for in fantasy. And it's, and even Jonathan Classe, we're not talking about him. And I know there's a ton of swing and miss, but he's coming off of what? It's a 2080 or 3080 season, something like that, something or 70, I think it is. Sure. Yeah. But it's power and speed, right? And so, yeah, there's tons of bats. Um, a lot of left handed bats, too, which I absolutely yeah. love because my one big roster construction uh, complaint about the, the Seattle Mariners, when you look at the 40 man roster and especially the 26, mm-hmm. is until the deadline, there wasn't enough handedness balance. They weren't taking advantage of the fact that the ball actually travels okay to right field right. in uh, at T Mobile Park. They didn't have enough left handed, but it was Cal Raleigh and it was Jared Kelnick. Right. That was pretty much it. Now right. we're getting more power right now from, from JP Cropper than we really ever expected. But now there's more balance. Canzones had his moments. Mike Fortis had his moments. Josh Rojas has had his moments. And all all of a sudden, this is a balanced ball club from an offensive standpoint. It's remarkable. So I love the fact that they were now they didn't draft Colt Emerson or Type because they were left-handed. Sure. But the fact that that Farmello, Emerson, Pete were are left-handed, I, I loved it. And we haven't even talked about uh, uh Aiden Smith either, no. who's a guy that that was probably drafted two rounds later than he should have been. No. I had scouts telling me, Oh my goodness, Jerry DePoto did it. Like this is great. And I'm like, Yeah, Emerson, Ty Pete. And they're no. like, No, Aiden Smith. So. Athletic six three six four. He's from Texas, right? Like Texas. Yeah. Cooler. He was probably the best prep hitter in Texas Athlete, this year. Big dude, mm-hmm. yeah, one hundred percent. And probably play center field for a while, even though he's a bigger guy. It's he not. just has that kind of movement. Maybe he's a uh, defensively like a Jake Marisnik is oh. what I've heard on on Aiden Smith. Hope so hit like Jake Marisnik, but yeah, yeah. You hope you hope to get more offense out of him. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so a couple other minor league questions for you. I do want to know your opinion on Montes. He's been mm-hmm. a big. How about uh, Ryan Howard as a better comp, by the way, for yeah. for Montes? Because because comps are really supposed to be about roles. Yes. Not not this player looks like this other player. I'm talking about what can he put up 
at the plate. A pure first baseman, oh, not going to play the outfield. That's no. Ryan Howard. A left-handed bat with monster power who probably doesn't hit for a ton of average at the big league level, but probably hits 240, 250, 260 mm-hmm. and, and gets on base enough with, with kind of a lot of strike. I mean, that's Ryan Howard to me. Wow. You know, it's not Carlos Delgado. It's not Jordan Alvarez. Right now, I think the best comp is probably a guy like Ryan Howard. I talk myself way out of Lazaro Montez a couple of months back and not me not to say that I wasn't on him he was a top 10 or 12 guy for me but I think it was too harsh on the fact that he was going to be first base only because I look around the league right now and I look at guys like Matt Olson he's putting up the 50 homer a year but even if we were just talking about a 280 35 homer guy there're not a lot of those guys around there're not a lot of those guys first base is not a position you know when you get a guy who can hit 260 to 280 get on base 35 plus percent of the time and hit 30 homers for you there is a ton of value in that so i think i was putting too much on the idea that it's relatively speaking a bad body for an 18 year old kid and i do have concerns even, about that not even but relatively. I'm just like what can he do at the plate that's all that really matters. Even if he's a DH at the end of the day, Nelson Cruz, you know, put up a ton of value just being a DH the, the second half of his career. So, uh, yeah, I was a little harsh on Montez for that reason, but he's shown a lot more hit tool than, than I think anybody expected. And I'm really curious to see what he does next. If he lands next year, next summer in Everett and does anything with the Aqua Sox at such a young age. Yeah. This is a guy we're going to need to start talking about a lot more. Right. The last, uh, this is a random one, but the last Mariners minor leaguer I have a question uh, for you about is Jeter Martinez. Mm. I know, I knew the pedigree coming in. I've seen the numbers this year. What can you tell the listeners about uh, about Martinez and should they be as excited as the numbers uh, say? Yeah, I think the numbers can be... Um can be deceiving when you're looking at the Dominican summer league, because sure. first of all, the, the competition is always questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, pitchers at that age are always way, way ahead of the hitters mm-hmm. far, far. When you get a pitcher that can throw in the low nineties, even I mean, we have Gina Martinez in some games touching 94, 95, 96, mm-hmm. he's facing 17, 18, 19 year old hitters in the Dominican summer league who've never faced on any sort of regular basis. And now they're facing that, you know, two, three, four times a week. Right. And if you can throw strikes with that, just the fastball, you're going to get most guys out. So the numbers themselves, I wouldn't get too excited about, but we're talking about a prototypical size right-hander mm-hmm. who naturally throws. It's not a sinker, but there's just natural dive on his fastball, but he's also throwing a four seamer up in the zone now. And if there's any development of slider or curveball, depending on what that pitch turns into, it's a little slurvy at this point, um, but he can throw strikes with that too. If there's a change up in there at all, like it's easy to see a guy who can start like, and, and there's a ton of value in that. Even if he's like a number four guy that kind of falls into a, Oh, I've been, I'll use the Orioles because I've been ripping their rotation for the last several weeks. If he turns into like a 2023 version of Kyle Gibson, you got a good prospect that you didn't pay a ton of money for, but there's obviously upside there. Guy can reach the mid nineties. Uh, we'll see what kind of fastball value he has, but it's really all about physical development, development of the secondaries and how much can he throw strikes. And he's already doing a lot of that at 17, 18 years old. So um, I've only seen some, uh, some bullpen sessions, you know, video wise, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot to like the ball moves out of his hand. It comes at shoots out of his hand. The mall ball moves naturally to his arm side and has natural sink. And I was told he's throwing the four seamer up in the zone for swings and misses now. So be really, really interesting to see what happens next year. If they can get him to the States, 
get him to at least start the year, you know, in spring training, extended spring training and get him out to Modesto at 18, 19 years old and see what happens. I'd really like to see that because they don't have a ton of pitching uh, down in the, uh, down in the bottom of the minors or in the upper minors. So uh, guys like, uh, uh, guys like Jeter Martinez are going to become important until they start filling the uh, the middle of the minors with some of those college runs from the draft that we've been talking about. It's Morales and Ford, and there's not a whole mm-hmm. heck of a lot outside of that. If he, yeah, I guess you can count Baroa, but Baroa is a, a reliever through and through. So, mm-hmm. which brings me to one last question for you. I, it's funny that we'd land on a reliever for this last question, but <laughs> why isn't, and this is for my buddy Matt Whitlock because he rosters him in all of our fantasy leagues. But why isn't Prelander Baroa, you know, given the fatigue in this bullpen currently, right, in the Mayor's bullpen, mm-hmm. and feeling like the bullpen is one arm short, in my opinion, I think they're searching for that one arm that can take a, you know, even a medium leverage sort of inning, maybe in the seventh with the two run lead. Why isn't Baroa in the majors? What is it that they're clearly the Mariners have identified something that they don't like that he's doing or he's in a, unable to do at this point in time? What is it about him that you've heard or that you see that why he's not in the major leagues right now? Yeah, this one's pretty easy. You just cannot trust him to consistently throw strikes right now. You cannot do it. Like it, even in his best streaks over 10 or 12 innings, he's walked five or six guys. Mm-hmm. And while that may not look bad when you're looking at a stat line from a, from a sample of, you know, 10 or 12 innings, five walks in 10 innings, like that, that's not good. What's that going to look like at the big league level when you're, when you're nibbling a little bit more, where you're, you know, worried a little bit more about where you throw a pitch. Um, so that's really it at this point. They can't trust Perlana bro, but the stuff is disgusting. Like, you know, you, you've seen it. Uh, it, you don't need to be sitting behind the plate to see how disgusting the fastball on the side. It's a really hard, like vertically cutting slider. Um, but the fastball will get swings and misses. The slider will get swings and misses. And he's got a change up in that it isn't really throw as a reliever that he was using as a starter that has a chance as well. So during the course of Perlando Barroa's career, you might see him use a change up that sometimes looks pretty disgusting as well. So he's just got to throw strikes. And, and that's, you know, that's why he's, that's why he was moved to the pen in the first place. Right. But they just can't really trust him. You look, I just pulled it up. Uh, since August 19, he's uh, appeared in 10 games, 11 and a third innings. 10 hits, five walks, and a home run, 18 strikeouts. That's big time. But right. those five walks in 11 and 13, that's a problem. And a lot of times it tends to be he'll walk a guy, get an out, walk a guy. You know, So now he's put two guys on in a close game. You can't have that in a pennant race, right? No. You can't have that right now. So, custom. Right. I actually think Casey Sadler has a shot mm-hmm. to come up and help this club in sure. September. He's been throwing the ball better. I think the one thing there is – um, he's only, he's pitching like every third or fourth day mostly. Mm-hmm. And even though you have that extra arm in your pen, you like guys to be available back to back or at least every other day. And I'm not sure they feel good about Casey Sather there right now, but he's 90 to 93 with a pretty good cutter and a pretty good curveball. curveball so, yeah. Don't forget about Casey Sather. There's a chance you see him at least toward the tail end of the season. If they need to go get an arm right on, man. This has been, for me, like, I just feel like we're just chopping it up, talking Mariners baseball, and it's been an absolute blast. I am incredibly thankful for you coming on. Um, like I said, you were, I to me, what I was describing to my friends that you were coming on, I'm like, this is the dude who's kind of, like, blazed the trail for Mariners, like, blogs and pods, right? Like, you were the mm. dude who did it in the beginning, and 
We all read it. I'm again, I'm super thankful for you coming on. Uh, it feels like just talking baseball with the homie. Right. And that's yep. kind of what those are my favorite podcasts. My favorite listens are when you just get to talk ball. Um, I love this team. You love this team. Obviously we both passionate about the minor leagues and this team has a, has a long stretch where I think they can be really, really successful. But mm. if you want to plug what you've got going on, I know you've got a ton of stuff out, even outside of your normal, you know, nine to five, uh, go ahead and please do that for us. Uh, ah, you can find me on Twitter at prospect insider and my Patreon podcast is baseball thing. So give it a, give it a listen. Sometimes there's free ones, but you can catch a five minute preview on, uh, on one of the two episodes every week. But uh, uh, listen to this show, put this show in your rotation, keep this show in your rotation. Good stuff. Thanks, Tino. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you guys for listening to this uh, tonight's Mariners cast. We are presented by Sports Ethos. Once again, you can find me on Twitter at Tino Junior 20. That's T-I-N-O-J-R-2-0 and the podcast at Ethos Mariners. Take care, y'all. Appreciate the listen. Go follow Jason. He rocks it. Uh, this was a blast, man. Again, I can't thank you enough. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thank you, brother. We'll talk soon.